friends, and welcome to the Prefrontal Podcast, where we delve into the intricacies of the brain and explore the fascinating world of neuroscience. My name is Isabel. And I'm Patrick. Today we cover a topic that's relevant to many of us, whether you're an aspiring neuroscientist or an established researcher. It's the ever-present dilemma, do I choose academia or industry? And with both of us nearing the end of our master's programs, it's a dilemma that Isabel and I are facing ourselves. Yes, it absolutely is. And I think when we first embarked on our scientific journey, it was easy to simplify the decision as a choice between working for some big evil pharma company versus doing noble and disease curing research. But as we've grown, we've come to appreciate the many options available for early career scientists and their intricacies and nuances behind choosing a career path. From science communications and startups to nonprofit organizations, NGOs, and consulting work, there's a whole world of possibilities outside the traditional PhD to postdoc to PI and professor route. Which brings us to our guest today, somebody who has experienced both the academic and industry worlds and can provide some invaluable insights, Mio Mitrich. Mio earned his neuroscience PhD at the Medical University of Innsbruck in Austria before completing his postdoc at the CNCR in Amsterdam. There, he used innovative molecular and behavioral techniques to study fear memory in mice. He specializes in electrophysiology and data science. Currently, he works as an editor at a major scientific publishing company. Today, we talked to Mio about his experiences transitioning from industry to academia and vice versa. We cover a range of topics such as work-life balance and mental health, how to know if a PhD is right for you, helpful tips for networking, and even the impact of AI on the future of research publishing. We learned a lot from Mio, and we hope you do too. So without further ado, let's bring him on. Welcome, Mio. Thank you for coming on to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Isa. It's good to see you again. To start off, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your journey in becoming a neuroscientist, uh, including what led you to academia initially and what inspired your transition to your current position in scientific publishing. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Well, I mean, I by the time I got into neuroscience, I, I do have like a bit of a non-linear career path. So basically I have a background in pharmacy and I studied pharmacy back in Serbia. And after I finished university, I started working for two years. For two years, I worked in a clinical research organization, basically in clinical research, but still it was a company. So I was already in industry. So I made this transition after two years in Serbia from industry to academia, which is a little bit, a little bit unusual. Hmm. And the reason I did that was because I was working with clinical studies and I was a little bit frustrated that I wasn't sort of controlling them, but we were only overseeing the regulatory process and how the studies were developing. But I kind of wanted more hands-on when it comes to research itself. And one of the studies that I was working on was in the field of neuroendocrinology. So that kind of re-sparked my interest in the brain. And um, because pharmacy, the background in pharmacy kind of gives you like a broad overview of many fields in health and medical sciences and biology as well. Um, I pursued a PhD um, and applied in a couple of places, got accepted at the Medical University of Innsbruck in Austria, where I basically studied, um, yeah, so basically prefrontal, so this this name of the pod I love, because prefrontal cortex is one of the my favorite brain subregions or brain regions, 
and you were a good guest. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's a, it's a good opening. Um, so I was studying processing of chronic pain in, in the prefrontal cortex, and we were using mouse model uh, of um, an, basically a nerve injury uh, mouse model for that. And after finishing the PhD, I, uh, or at least during my PhD, uh, we established a collaboration with the Free University in Amsterdam when I had like my first yeah, experience with the city and with the CNCR where uh, both of you did your internships. And I, I liked the way things were functioning there and identified a lab that also works on the prefrontal cortex in a slightly different field. So in a, in a field of memory, even though I still feel that chronic pain is kind of a pain memory as well. Um, where, wherein I pursued a postdoc uh, for, for three years. And finally, since six months now, uh, in September, I made a switch back from academia to industry and I work in one of the biggest publishers there are Elsevier as a, as a scientific editor. Yeah, so oh, that would wow. that would kind of be my path again, nonlinear. <laughs> wow, that's quite the journey. You mentioned that part of the reason you switched to academia was in order to get more hands-on experience, but was any of it motivated by the need to have a higher level of education? in order to attain the types of jobs you knew you inevitably wanted to have? Um, I'll be completely honest and blunt about it, absolutely. It did play a role and it was a motivator to have that comma PhD behind behind my name, you know, when I put it in the signature. And uh, it took many years, many years to understand that it does not hold such a great value that I thought it would. Um, however, the whole PhD track and, 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 and the experience that I had in it, doing academia for for eight years was absolutely invaluable in its essence of actually performing experiments and going through all the projects and but I think we can we can talk about that a bit more through 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 this um, yeah through this episode let's put it that way <laughs> I was also curious um if your experience in academia in Austria versus Amsterdam if it was very different hmm yeah I mean like the basic things are very similar um i would say no i think the um, from from a practical point of view but that might not be so interesting to the listeners is like because i i worked in animal research so the um, the regulations of animal research were way more strict in the Netherlands than they were in Austria so obtaining the licenses and ethics committee approval and stuff like that uh, were a bit more, let's say, uh, complex um, and, and and challenging in the Netherlands. That's one of the things. Uh, but other than that, nothing that I can think about. I mean, the, there were different labs. So I was working in a more um, yeah, secluded lab in, in, in Innsbruck, where we were doing most of the things on our own. And there wasn't that much collaboration happening whereas in amsterdam we were part of the central uh, center of neurogenomics and cognitive research so it's a bigger institute with uh, multiple departments that can do different things and i think opportunities for collaboration were much bigger in amsterdam but it's also a bigger city there are many more bigger centers so it's not really fair to compare maybe innsbruck to amsterdam at this point hmm. yeah. yeah fair yeah. enough um yeah. so regarding getting wanting to get that title behind your name um I think a lot of people can relate to that. 
And many people go into academia, not because they want to, but because they don't want to miss the opportunity, um, as it can be relatively easy to go from academia to industry. But uh, if you miss too many years, the reverse can be difficult. Um, do you think that academia should be more open to unpublished scientists? Oh, absolutely. But I mean, I am I I didn't think about it until until the, this question. I didn't I didn't think about the fact and while I was introducing myself that actually I made a transition from industry to academia and now back to industry, which is, as I said, a little bit unusual. Usually you after your master's, you're gonna want to pursue your PhD as soon as possible. And I think um this is definitely um Pursuing your PhD, even at a later stage of your career, um, at any age, actually, I feel it's not that common in neuroscience, but it is more common in other sciences. And I think from that being said, it's never too late to pursue a PhD if this is what you want to do. And I think I think uh, academia should definitely remain open to that. I think um, a lot of, you know, you're kind of limiting input of people that can bring a lot from 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 the corporate world from from industry experience from industrial roles where they have been developing different skills and letting them enter an academic path simply because they're i don't know too old let's put it at there or simply because of their age i think that is a pity and the other question i think was more related to the title itself i think whether it's whether it's worth basically um obtaining the title and, and but yeah i feel like maybe we will touch base on that in later in, in in the later questions yeah cool well thanks for your perspective on that um do you think it was more difficult to make the transition from industry to academia or the other way around i think and i mean you many many i guess master students experience that i think the the in my view, the, the biggest bottleneck or like the, the the biggest challenge you have when applying for any type of a job, whether it's a PhD or uh, um, a job in industry, is after you finish your university because you don't have the experience. And you know that um, luckily some, um, within some master studies, you gain a lot of internship experience. So like that, you are a really good candidate to do a, a PhD. But if you're going to apply to an industry job, um, that experience might not play such a big role. And you will not have those couple of years of experience that many job positions require. Now, going back to your question, it, it really depends on, on the position. I think from the master's position, it may be easier to go directly to a PhD than um, to go from industry to a PhD. That's what I think, because you are fresh from wet lab work you're fresh from the old internships that you did your networks are fresh you know you're you're kind of very often you could do a phd immediately in the in the uh, you might you may be offered a position in a lab where you did your internship or that bi knows someone in another lab and i think if you go to industry and do your <clears throat> work for two three four years you're stepping a little bit away from academia and then you need to bridge that gap in order to go back. So that's why I think going from industry to academia might be definitely more difficult than the other way around. Yeah, okay. that would be final answer. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
That definitely makes sense. Well, then on the other side, what would you say are some of the challenges you experienced transitioning from academia back to industry? Hmm. Challenges, challenges. I think I think it was a it's a bit of a psychological challenge. I feel um, learning to let go um, and delegate as many tasks as you can to specialized departments that are good at doing that. And what I mean by that is that when you're when you're when you're in science, when you're in academia, we're all we all have our own project. We have our own baby that you know you try to do as much as you can on your own. You're 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 doing every little thing related to that project. So you're not only a project manager, you're also acquiring data you're a data analyst, you're a scientific writer, et cetera, et cetera. That's at least how you also we also sell our skills when you apply for a job in industry. Now in industry, things are different. There is um there is a person that does marketing. You want to do marketing, you talk to that person. There's a person that does social media management. There is a person person uh, for for graphic design. There are many, many different departments, and I think the most important thing for me in the beginning was to get to know the structure and to let go and not try to do everything myself. Uh, that's, uh, and I think it's, it's a very efficient way the corporate world runs and something that I think academia could benefit from, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Do you think you maybe um, have to have more interpersonal skills if you're working in an industry then? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so that, that may be, that was one of the, uh, the main challenges, I think, because, you know, in, in academia, you kind of, you know, you're, you're with your experiments, you can focus, uh, you, you, you do communicate with people, you communicate with your supervisors, with your peers, with, uh, with your colleagues, but your project does not depend on it as much as, for example, in my position, my current position of a scientific editor, I need to communicate with people a lot. And we have many meetings. And I think that part was, well, challenging. I like to talk as you can see. So um, it wasn't that challenging, but it was definitely a difference. Yeah, yeah. Something I've noticed in my current lab is that meetings do tend to take up a very large amount of time. And people even lament that they spend so much time in meetings that they don't have time to actually work on their own projects. Do you think that there's a difference in the amount of time allocated to meetings between academia and in your current job? Yeah, more more the yeah we have more meetings and uh, i think in industry there are definitely more meetings at least i i attend more meetings than i did uh during my phd or a postdoc track i think during my postdoc or phd track there were meetings like lab meetings when you discuss a project and present things but um you would attend maybe more presentations or talks. And I don't know if you can classify those really as meetings because, you know, someone is presenting the data, you're uh, you're listening and they're sharing the knowledge, you're learning something. Whereas in industry, you have many more meetings where you're kind of updating each other on the progress of certain projects, sub-projects, you're deciding on your objectives and key results for the next year, um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So they are more from a practical point of view, like okay, this is what we want to do, and you're not just sharing knowledge with other people. Is it? Do you think it's also to have more team building in in industry, and that's a part of the reason why there's more meetings? Because it feels like in academia, when we have meetings, it's 
there's still sort of an independence behind it where people are presenting their own research, but you're you're there almost to support them. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think I don't think the point of meetings in industry are necessarily team building. They up to a certain degree, yes, so that you keep in touch. And particularly now, um, basically pandemic initiated um, this this kind of hybrid working and remote working, where you you don't really you're you're not next to your colleagues in the office. So it's really good to kind of touch base every once in a while in more and more meetings. So I think. It may be one of the reasons, but I think the main reason is simply talking things through um, and 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 exchanging an opinion and getting feedback and advising, you know, advising people on what they would do and asking questions. That 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 kind of an interaction that as long as a meeting is yeah, a meeting in my view should be justified. Um if if you can fit it in an email in short email, you should definitely opt for sending an email, right? Yeah, I, I think that's what uh, we all want. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So I I definitely prefer an email, but you also don't want to have like this huge correspondence of ten people, you know, um, writing and writing and writing. That also takes a lot more time, and you will see that a meeting of fifteen to thirty minutes would have been more time efficient. So in the end, it's all about efficiency, I would say. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you miss about academia? And conversely, is there anything that you appreciate much more about your current job in industry? Yeah, so, I mean, one one thing that I, that I failed to mention is like, even though I transitioned to industry, I, I really loved, I loved academia. I loved doing experiments and I, I, I loved the experience that I had as a scientist, as a, as, a, as a neuroscientist. And one of the things that I miss a lot is this, is this feeling of it has its positive and negative sides like when you have your own project and you're doing your experiment and uh, that moment that when when you look at your data the data that you generated and you gain insights and you know okay I'm literally the first person right now that gained insights from this type of an experiment it may be something completely novel and it's interesting and in a way it's unpredictable and I mean, I think that that part I definitely miss and having that project that you feel solely in a way responsible for um, sometimes also performing experiments. Yeah, th those kind of things. I, I'm, I'm an electrophysiologist by training, so I also really like batching and using the rig and performing experiments was also very, very interesting, at least for me personally. So those things I definitely miss. Um, some of the things that I really do like about the industry is that is vice versa, that you didn't, I don't feel solely responsible for that one project, but somehow I am part of a big company and we all share a burden for the success of that company. And therefore, I think it depends on your job responsibility, depends on the position that you have, the amount of responsibility, but I feel that the stress is a bit lower. So given that everything is kind of delegated and, and and spread around this corporate structure makes it a little bit less stressful, definitely less stressful than academia. Okay. Yeah. Well, that transitions well into my next question about academia and work-life balance. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you are soon to become a father. 
Yes. And, yeah, it seems that you've taken the smart and conventional path of leaving academia, starting a job in industry, and then starting a family. But could you see it also being a viable idea to start a family while still in academia? Or is the work-life balance so skewed that it would be really an unhealthy choice? Yeah, yeah, I I think it's a it's a bit of a misconception to I mean, it is from a practical point of view when when starting a family um you you want to be able to finish your work from 9 to 5. You you want to be able to organize your 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 day and I also think that for for the initial period where where my wife and me we we are expats and um we, we live abroad, therefore our families are in our home countries, Serbia and Italy. Therefore, in that sense, we don't have our the support of our families to to raise a child. Having remote working possibilities is definitely an advantage. And now I'm getting a bit off the topic, but I'm kind of justifying that having the possibility to work remotely is ethical point of view very beneficial compared to compared to um having to perform experiments and going to the lab every day. Uh, so that is one of definitely definitely one of the benefits for for simply remote working, but it still doesn't tell you anything about the work life balance that you mentioned. In terms of work life balance, um, I I see that in 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 industry this is sort of respected much more than in academia because in an academic environment, I feel that for example, it's kind of untold. But if someone tells you, yeah, you know, you, you you should plan your experiments like that and that, and I'm not telling you to come on the weekends and do it, but, you know, because it's your project. So it's really, everything is kind of, this is your project. It really depends on how much, the success of the project depends on how much you are willing to invest in it. And then, you know, it, there is this culture of overworking in academia, and there's this culture of staying until late and working from early in the morning until late in the evening, which doesn't bid well with with this work-life balance we are talking about here, or having a family or having someone that's waiting at home, uh, even if you have a pet that you want to walk in the morning and, and, and in the afternoon or in the evening. Yeah, it's kind of, it's definitely an obstacle to, to those things. And no one's going to really tell you, hey, you need to, you have to come, at least in the Netherlands, to the lab on the weekends. You have to work 12 hours a day. No one's going to say that. But it is kind of an, you know, it is kind of an unsaid rule out there that you should work more than your usual hours if you want to be successful. And if you, and somehow you have to prove that you're passionate about your work and you're so passionate that you're going to overwork yourself and yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that is the only way to succeed, which I think is wrong. So I think the work-life balance is definitely depends on the position. Again, I'm saying depends on the position in industry, depends on how you take it. But I think uh, an academic world would definitely benefit from taking care that the academic personnel, whether PhD students, postdocs, even PIs, you know, maintain this work-life balance as they do in industry. Uh, so could you discuss some key differences in terms of collaboration and networking opportunities between academia and industry? Or maybe if it's more important to network in one versus the other? Well, I think networking is very important in, in, 
I would say it's equally important in, in academia and industry. I do think it is done a little bit differently. So for example, for a scientific editor, it's not even that different because in the end you would go to conferences and listen to talks of 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 uh, and 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 try to identify current hot topics of research and what is being done that is not yet published so you would go to conferences and meet with scientists and communicate with them same as you would in academia one main difference is that in in industry you will be if you're in a big company you will be networking a lot within the company so you want to know exactly whom to ask for that and that specific problem or sub problem of a bigger issue that you're trying to solve so so in that sense it really helps to know every single department who you know uh, within to know the structure of the organization to talk to people and also to talk to people to exchange opinions within the similar positions that you have and to learn the best ways to solve to solve a problem, which is also something that, of course, you do in academia. You just do it in a, maybe a different setting because it's not all part of one company. It's not that easy to connect. So you're using opportunities at conferences, at um, seminars, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe the networking is a little more local in academia? Well, I would say in industry. I would, I would oh, sorry, say... Sorry, in industry. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, from my personal experience, yes. Yes, because also the you know com competition is a bit more fierce in in mm. outside in industry. You're not necessarily going to you know communicate with a competitor uh, and discuss discuss problems, but you will try to solve it within the company. Whether whereas in the scientific world, ideally that's not the case. <laughs> Do you think it's also more of an important skill in industry if you want to climb up to different positions? Absolutely. 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 You basically follow people um, that climbed and you, one very nice thing about the industry compared to academia is that you can very easily, depends on the company, but you can very easily move both horizontally, uh, both horizontally and vertically within the hierarchy. So you can change your position. I mean, um, you could be, for example, in the, in the publishing industry, you could be a scientific editor, you could be a publisher, you could work in different content acquisition departments, et cetera, et cetera. You could be a data analyst. So those are all kind of um, horizontal movements or horizontal promotions or just changes in the position. And then vertically, you can you can yeah be promoted and become a senior and a department director, et cetera. And all of this depends that you put yourself out there, but also that you gain information from people that are doing these kind of jobs and learning what they're doing and whether this would be something you would be interested in. Okay, so there's a lot of variability. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah. Would you say that the hierarchy structure within academia is much more rigid than in industry? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean... We, you know, like I, I would like to ask, like which hierarchy? You know, like you have within the academic research world, there's like you know, you can be a PhD, a postdoc, research staff, and you can be a PI, and of course, and or professor. Like depends on. So I think they're like it. It is a bit because as a scientist, you're doing everything. <laughs> there aren't that many positions, right? Because as a 
as a PhD student, we said like you are, you're editing, you're writing, you're analyzing, you're performing experiments, you are teaching, supervising. I mean, you name it, you're like uh, a jack of all trades. And um, I think in industry, you are kind of put in a cluster of more specialized job roles and you can move, particularly someone coming from academia because you do possess so many skills you can very easily move along this horizontal line and basically jump from one position to another if you figure out that maybe this is not something that that fits your needs. Um, so for the next question, I think uh, <laughs> we might know the answer, but just just in case, we'll ask uh, if from a financial standpoint, how does mm -hmm. do earning potentials differ between the two paths and how has this affected your life? Yeah, I mean, you know, we were talking about these misconceptions and I mean, the thing is that uh, the earning potential, so the earning potential is, I think, on an average better in industry than it is in academia. This is not a surprise. Um, for me, it hasn't changed drastically. And this is one of the misconceptions that, you know, like going, at least in the Netherlands, going from a postdoc position to to industry that you're you're going to make like a huge difference in your remuneration package right um this is this at least for me that this was not the case and i know this is not the case for for many people but the earning potential meaning that you kind of can climb up the ladder and move horizontally and gain more responsibility and with more responsibility also get a better package and and, and negotiate better um your earnings definitely more potential than in academia. That being said, uh, what in academia, um, at least in the company that I work in and it, at the FU, we have these tables and like, as you do, as you do in, in, in universities, you have these tables, you have scales and within those scales, you have different levels of earnings. And it's exactly the same in academia and industry in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, but one difference is that it's a little bit more, these scales to me feel a little bit more rigid in, in, in academia, where, for example, you know, you have a scale for a PhD, then you have a scale for a postdoc. However, the only way to go from one scale higher for a postdoc is to start obtaining grants, get on a tenure tenure track, and become a PI and have their own group. So then you're, you know, you're going up, you are going in another scale and you have potential to earn more. And you have potential to earn pretty, to be uh, pretty decently um, remunerated for, um, yeah, for your position in academia. But if you are not going to make that step after a postdoc, if you would say be a postdoc or research staff, and this is what you want to do, you want to perform experiments, but you don't, you don't want to have your own group, you will very quickly cap that scale. So you will very quickly kind of, you know, reach the maximum that you can earn. And that would not happen in industry. So that's, that's one of the, of course, um, salary related uh, benefits of, of, of industry versus academia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose there's also just shorter positions in academia. Maybe that's a part of it. You Absolutely. can't really be a permanent scientist unless you want to eventually be a manager. Yeah, I mean, there are, I think there are, I don't know if there are more and more uh, research, sort of research staff positions 
where you know um as a postdoc um, you you as a postdoc or after after your phd you could basically be research staff and provide support to the lab in uh, also supervising mentoring students and performing experiments but not having your own group however there aren't that many of those positions around which i think it's a pity yeah i would agree it's too bad that more people can't stick around for a longer period of time in the current lab yeah and there is this ah there, uh, there is this kind of taboo of you know uh of a postdoc forever you know it's kind of like a bad thing and i, I never realized why is that a bad thing but it's like you know i don't want to be a postdoc forever like he's a he's a forever postdoc i'm like that's not it's not a bad thing sounds kind of a very interesting thing it just means that that person does a postdoc in one lab and does a project for three four four years or so and then goes to another pro another lab and does something else and i don't know it really depends on the lifestyle but i do find that kind of an occupation quite interesting and vibrant as well yeah that that sounds pretty attractive to me actually right yeah. i think uh going into being a pi you just have a lot more stress than you're a manager and uh, dealing with the financial side more uh, absolutely i mean as you as you as you get up on those scales and like as you of course get paid more and obtain grants you're gaining much more responsibility you're getting more things that you have to do you're getting more and more into teaching you're getting more and more into obtaining funds supervising uh, of course dealing with projects and now there are other people that then perform experiments instead of you and those are the phd students or or, or postdocs and i think that's a that's a good thing because there kind of comes for a switch between roles but you do have more responsibility and therefore stress. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Both Isabel and I are coming to the end of our masters. So we're at that very pivotal moment where we have to decide whether to continue with academia, get a PhD or to leave academia. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it's ever a bad choice to get a PhD? And if so, could you maybe elaborate on some instances where getting a PhD is in fact a bad choice? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I cannot, if someone were to ask me, like if the two of you were, would ask me now, like, should, should, it, should we do a PhD? It's PhD is not like one size fits all, right? It's uh, it really depends on your interests. It depends on your motivation to do one, but the reason not to do one, a clear reason that comes to my mind is mental health. If at any point during your PhD you feel this is too much, this is stressful, this is, you know, uh, you should you should definitely leave it on the side. That's the, you know, I think I think that is one of the main reasons I would say do not, not do not do it. But like more, you can try it, and then if you see that it's too much during the during the whole PhD track for you and you cannot handle it, that uh, you should not be ashamed to to just leave it and, and quit. So perhaps someone who is pre-PhD should reflect on their mental health during their master's and maybe use that as a gauge to decide whether they want to go for a PhD. Absolutely. Uh, in my view, yes. It shouldn't, how they say, um, I think they should do a clear assessment and I think they should definitely seek support and, um, you know, and, and try to understand whether this is something that would be good or that would be really detrimental to their mental health. Because the stress levels 
from doing a master's internship to doing a PhD will, I mean, the amount of responsibility, the amount of work will be higher. Now, I, of course, now during the internship, you also, um, at least before the internships, you, you, you do, you have exams, you are a student, so it's a different kind of stress. Uh, doing a PhD, at least in the Netherlands, depends on the country, is more like it, it's proper employment. Um, but in that sense, um, I think, yeah, yeah, I, I would, I would definitely consider it. I would definitely do a very careful assessment of how did your master's internship impact your mental health? How did you cope with the stress? How did you cope with the goals that you achieved, did not achieve? And how did that make you feel? And take that into consideration when, when deciding whether to do your PhD or not. That's really useful to hear, actually, because I think a lot of us have struggled with the internships, but it's hard to know if that's something that you just feel if in a six months internship or, you know, how much just getting into the flow of work would help. Yeah, but, you know, it also it also depends a lot, a lot from from the lab you are in, uh, from your surrounding, from the support of your colleagues and your peers. So that's that's also one of the things that will that will play a major role. So it's very difficult to say before, you know, like should you do a PhD or not? I think if if one is curious about science, if one is curious about having their own project and contributing to the overall, you know, sea of science and knowledge, definitely go for it, try it, but do not be ashamed of of you know pulling the plug if things get too much. So then would you recommend to somebody who was unsure to still apply to PhDs and pursue that direction? Why not? I mean, I, I don't think I don't think you're losing anything. You may lose like one year or so. Um, but I mean, of course, on the other hand, it is taxpayers money. So in that sense, if you're going to do it, do it properly, acquire good data, uh, be very yeah, how they say self-conscious and conscious of the ethics and uh, scientific rigor. I think those are very, very crucial points because as I said, this is taxpayers' money. But even in that one year, you will be contributing to science um, if your supervisor guides you in the right direction. And if you cannot make it, yeah, it's that is, that is perfectly fine. Um, I feel like in academia, when you leave academia, it's everyone is kind of very much disappointed um, with 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 the decision that you made. And if you do not manage to finish your PhD, somehow you have a feeling like you failed. Um, I think that is a that's a wrong approach. I mean, people uh, in industry, um, people switch companies, they switch positions, they try to find something that fits them. And I think up to a certain degree, being a scientist should be considered as a job position, as something that you're trying out to see if it fits you and if it's a good thing. You, you simply do not know until you are there. And um, that being said, I think a chance should definitely be given to PhD students and it should not be condemned, you know, the fact that they quit. That's That's just my view. I wonder if that's, um, I feel like there's often a misconception, and this is something that we talked about in the intro as well, that, um, you know, people, we don't get so much exposure when we're studying to what the outside options are outside of academia. So it's hard to understand that there are ways that you're still contributing to science or 
many different, you know, positive causes outside of uh, just pure academia and wet lab work? Oh, absolutely. Oh, uh, but absolutely. There, I mean, yeah. Don't don't get me started on that. Like you know, it's like we we, yeah. In academia, you will focus on a very narrow niche. We were talking about doing some like having a sense of agency and be doing doing something that's that you find impactful for the well-being of the planet or people around you or like just you know making a difference um you can definitely do that also outside of academia but absolutely i mean in academia often we get stuck on like you know very um very narrow topics subtopics sub 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 subtopics um that you are looking into and that are like a drop in that sea of whatever uh, knowledge that potentially would make a change or an impact. And you often lose that, um, lose a sense of that impact and that helicopter view that in some other positions in industry, you do not lose sense of because they're very important. Yeah. So as some person who has been very successful at jumping back and forth between academia and industry, do you have any resources you might be able to recommend for us and our listeners in order to be able to find careers and discover job listings? Yeah, yeah. So I think if you are a student at a, at a university, um, I don't know which kind of... Um, yeah, resources the university or the department provides. But for example, the Free University of Amsterdam had this um, basically kind of a career, um, a course on guiding your career and uh, making making career steps, whether you're changing your career or you want to uh, remain in academia and pursue a path of becoming a PI and having your own lab. Um, it's good to undertake that course. And in that course, you will really go through different steps of what is important from your side to do to first of all figure out what your competencies and skills are how you could use them what it is you want to do what is very important for you is it to make a change is it to make a, earn a lot of money to be acknowledged etc cetera, etc cetera. and so i think the first step is to kind of identify what is it that you want up to a certain degree, so vaguely. And then the second step is to network. And now this networking comes down to LinkedIn, and that comes down to having input to information about job ads, openings, job positions. And very, very often the job positions that you see on LinkedIn, everyone knows this, and probably many of the listeners have heard this, but is um, they are first advertised internally within the company, and only then externally. So if you do have and know people that work in a certain company or do a certain positions in a position in a company that you're interested in, talk to them, reach out, ask them to devote five minutes of their time and explain to you what is it that they do during the day. Because it's not always clear. You know, you will have these job positions that 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 explain these job responsibilities. For example, when I applied for my positions, there were like responsibilities that now represents 10% of my day, like 10% of my working hours. So that that has expanded a lot. And, and you know, um, it's, it's not always clear what people do based on their position. And with the same position in a different company, they might be doing completely different things. Um, I think that would be, so my main kind of advice would be to try to figure out what it is that you want to do. Um, 
but vaguely and try to get a better idea by talking to people that are do- that are doing those positions. So basically reach out, make a LinkedIn account, um, make the profile nice and professional, see, look at other people's profiles, try to, you know, uh, pick up, get my, and then of course, reach out to people. Like don't be kind of reserved or shy in that sense, but yeah. Yeah, that's you're telling the scientists not to be shy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, of course, <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you're saying that reaching out to people serves a dual purpose of both making connections and finding out what the day to day life of that particular job actually will look like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So both both acquiring a job, but also figuring out figuring out what you want to do. I think for both things you need to you need to talk to people you need to yeah you need your social media outreach but like you you know you can for for academia for science you can definitely use twitter um i suppose researchgate um nowadays mastodon potentially instead of twitter uh but but even in academia but even more so in industry linkedin is the key place to be at least, at least in Europe and North America. I don't think I've ever heard of Mastodon. Is that specifically a type of Twitter alternative? Yeah, I th- as far as I know, it's an open source uh, platform where scientists, researchers can communicate um, and 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 use it as an alternative platform to Twitter. That is kind of you know has its problems. <laughs> might not be as sustainable (laughs) yeah 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 let's see so as we approach the end of the podcast are there any remaining misconceptions that you think you would like to dispel about the difference between academia and industry i think one potential misconception would be you know one might consider that nowadays i have sort of an office job and that therefore it is not challenging uh, or vibrant enough or uh, you cannot advance, that you cannot challenge yourself, that you cannot learn new things in industry and, 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 and find something that you are definitely passionate about. I think a misconception is that that you cannot that you can only be passionate about science in academia. I think that's a misconception. I think you can definitely be passionate about science outside of an academic environment and um yeah that's that's definitely one of the things i would i would highlight and one of the things that i think now that i'm not in academia anymore so you're still passionate about your job and you're still engaged yeah absolutely 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 and i mean you know i'm i'm reading about different topics um maybe i'm not performing and or generating data and i'm not going in detail as much i feel more informed about a bigger variety of topics than i have been when i was focusing on my own little specialty and i think i think both things have their advantages and disadvantages so i think you, you one can find interest and um inspiration in both of them so so basically the answer is you have to figure it out yourself. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think, well, at least from my own experiences, like, I think one should try. Sometimes you do need to try things. You need to try different positions. I mean, of course, you can inform yourself 
to the best of your abilities. You can talk to people and and and, and get information. You can get now information from me, and I can tell you, for me, PhD was an amazing thing, and doing science was great. And for you, it can be that after one to two years, you know, you're like, this is I, I'm not passionate about this at all. And one of those misconceptions is like, you know, everyone talks about performing science, that it is art and you have the freedom to do whatever you want. And I think that is a little bit of a misconception because it also depends on the field that you started working in. It depends on the impact of your research and what is currently being funded and, 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 and you know, financially channeled within the EU by the EU funds, by the Netherlands funds, by, by funds in the US and, 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 and grants that you are applying for. Mm. That's one thing. And the other thing as a PhD, you are working on the topic that your supervisor wants you to work on. So you don't really have that freedom to research whatever you like, right? Um, I think that that is that is one of the things that I've heard people kind of talk talk a lot about as a as a as a positive side of academia. It's like you can you can do whatever you want, uh, and like okay, that might not always be true. Okay, so science isn't always boundless. From your perspective, are there any developments and advancements within the field of neuroscience that have the potential to greatly shape our job prospects in the near future? Oof. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we've all we've all seen what ChatGPT can do. So I would my first guess would be artificial intelligence and the use of AI in all the fields not only neuroscience and thing i think in all sciences the yeah the in that sense ai component is gonna definitely increase so i think that that is probably going to explode and that being said then within neuroscience i think computational neuroscience uh will gain more and more importance as it has already. I mean, uh, this has been going on for, for decades now, but it's definitely um, still in the, in, the rising, uh, in the rising stage. So would you say that it is equally important in both industry and in academia to develop your coding skills in deep learning and in machine learning? Oof, I think I think this will become a common literacy of the what uh, I can say of the twenty first century will be to have at least some kind of sense of coding, programming, some some skills in the IT sector. I think, and I'm sure that um, more and more students. So, so the master students, there are more and more courses, IT related courses available for students at the university, whichever field that, uh, which, whichever field of studies. So I think, yeah, I would say definitely, yes, it will become a form of, of literacy in my view. Yeah. yeah. So if you haven't been convinced now to start learning programming, then it's never too late. <laughs> never too late. Yeah. 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 Has um, ChatGTP changed your workflow as much as it's changed mine? Uh, poof, poof, poof. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of discussions about it. I mean, particularly in scientific publishing, uh, the presence of ChatGPT makes things uh, from a moral, um, yeah, from a moral aspect, a little bit complicated because basically 
Um, a question is now, how do you deal with content that has been published and that has been generated by ChatGPT and when and how you, um, you can refer to the source of the information, et cetera, et cetera. So this is something that is kind of currently not complicating the world, but it's the publishing world needs to, in a sense, you know, evolve together with the presence of these tools that still need to be validated, properly developed, and uh, definitely regulated. So I think regulations will have to develop as all these tools do, and it it will definitely change. Yeah, change the way we function. <laughs> So given your perspective as a scientific editor, I am really interested in your ethics on this because one strategy I was considering for writing the intro to my thesis is to take excerpts from a lot of different papers and then input that into ChatGTP and ask it to summarize it for me. Uh, of course, I would have to go back and yeah. change the arc and edit it a lot. But do you see this as fundamentally unethical? Hmm. Yeah, I mean... As long as you, as long as there's clear information there, and as long as everything is properly cited and referenced, and you go through it and you make sure that you are, you know, referring to the original work um, within the introduction, at least, I personally would not have a problem with that. I do have a little bit of a problem with the lack of originality there. So you're kind of losing your voice, mm -hmm. and I think the same applies for AI. AI generated art that looks amazing, but it, it's not really generated by by an erroneous human hand, right? That you know that can that can uh, create something like that, or that you know you're kind of losing your also style of writing. And I think when you publish an article, it should be your work. You're putting your name there. I think you should also have your own in a sense, your own style of writing there and your sentences and your words. On the other hand, you know, the in my view, the most important part of the paper are the results. So uh, particularly now as a, as a scientific editor, I think for me, that is absolutely crucial, methods and results. So sure, if you use ChatGPT to write an introduction, okay, as long as it clearly justifies the hypothesis that you originally thought of, by all means, and as long as you refer to the work, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is. I, I've sort of just been using it as um, more of an assistant, so I'll write the introduction and then just tell chat, make this better. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's <laughs> Where, also Then nice. you only really have to write one draft. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. But very nice. Um, I will ignore the fact that you dissed the prefrontal pod art created by Dolly. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all, not at all. Well done. <laughs> okay, Mio, do you do you have any last words for of advice for us who are anxious and trembling and have no idea what to do? <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. Uh, the only thing I can say that we've all been there. Uh, I'm not in that sense dissing the way um you know people people deal with with these major decisions in, in any way um dissing as in dismissing um but we've all been there simply in my view just talk to people 
And I think uh, this podcast provides an opportunity to do something like that. It's a form of uh, a dialogue, a conversation that you start. It might you might disagree with many of the things that I've said or 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 that uh, other speakers on the podcast will do. But you know, you're exposed to information, so then you can figure out what is the best best thing for you to do currently in life, at least at this early uh, stage of your careers. Excellent. Even if no one ever listens to a single episode, it'll still be beneficial to Isabel and me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been very helpful, uh, I think, for Patrick and I, <laughs> and definitely anyone who would listen to this. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on. Definitely. Pleasure was all mine. We thank you very much, and you've made a historic moment by being an excellent first guest. <laughs> first moment of fame. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. Now, now we're going now come the now come the bloopers you know <laughs> <laughs>